You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. As the sunlight fades to darkness... The frightful tales creep into your mind. It's time to give in to your fear. Tonight, there will be no sleep. I can't sleep. And now, who's listening? Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. It's episode four of season three. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, David Cummings. We have six tales for you in this episode, featuring stories about the strange encounters we can have with friends, family, and food. For those of you who don't have access to our full-length episodes, you may have missed one of the stories from our last episode. The story entitled Eggs was written by author Garen Cockrell. Garen is the editor of the website popculturebeast.com, and he also works on the comedy podcast Never Not Funny. If that isn't enough, Garen hosts his own podcast called Pop Culture Beast Presents Show. Thanks to Garen, this podcast got a great deal of publicity surrounding the release of his story, and to thank him for that, I released his story as a bonus track. So if you missed it, you can go to thenosleeppodcast.com and click the link to Season 3, Episode 3. There you will find a link to the bonus story, which you can stream online or download, all for free. Speaking of bonuses and surprises like this, social media is the best way to keep up to date with all the latest news and releases from the show. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash nosleeppodcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at nosleeppodcast. Anytime something new or noteworthy happens, I'll make sure to let you know via both methods. I want to welcome Brandon Boone to the podcast. Brandon is lending his musical talent to the soundtrack of this episode's fourth story. So welcome, Brandon. 
and thank you for sharing your talent with us. Along with the new listeners from Garen's Connections, I want to welcome our new listeners who heard about us on the past couple of episodes of Pseudopod. I had the privilege of doing some sponsorship of Pseudopod recently, and I appreciate the support and encouragement from the host, Alistair, and the show's editor, Sean. If you're not familiar with Pseudopod, it is the gold standard of horror fiction podcasting, and I encourage everyone to check it out at pseudopod.org. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. There is a small fraternity of us podcasters who present horror fiction storytelling these days, and I like to spread the word about our friends who present our kind of content. As I like to say, make Pseudopod and the No Sleep Podcast your double dose of top-notch horror podcasting. And speaking of horror podcasting, it's time to start the show. Our first tale is about that familiar rite of passage for most teenage boys, a gathering of friends for a night of underage drinking. As author Edwin Crow describes, this group of young men soon engage in a dangerous game that leads to a disturbing series of events. You could call it a cautionary tale about what could happen when you start to play drinking games. It was Joe's 18th birthday party. His older brother had given him the best present he could wish for at that age. Four crates of beer and two liters of vodka to be shared amongst the six of us. A dangerous amount of alcohol. We filled the people carrier up with the drink, copious amounts of snacks, junk food, enough for the weekend, and set off to my parents' cabin up in the chilly mountains. The weather felt visibly colder as the slippery road snaked up the mountainside, rising higher with every foot we traveled. The trees were covered in a fresh frosting of snow, reflected in the powdered grass that lined both sides of the road. The car struggled as the incline grew. I shifted down a gear to help the vehicle. It revved in relief at the extra horsepower. The cabin came into view through the crystal-clear mountain air. A large setting sun silhouetted the structure, its details lost in the shadow. The oranges and purples in the cloudless sky painted a magnificent backdrop for our arrival. Breath turned to vapor as we exited the car. Joe excitedly hurried to the trunk. He banged on it to get my attention. Come on, Steve, get moving! It's beer o'clock, and I'm late for my meeting, Joe said anxiously. I searched for the button to release the lock before realizing it would already be unlocked. It's already unlocked, you jackass, I replied. I heard the click of the lock disengaging. The hydraulics squealed as the door rose, the icy evening air flooding the car a tsunami of cold chilling me to the bone. 
four of us took a crate each, while Joe hooked a bottle of vodka between index and middle finger of each hand and jammed some snacks under his arm. Jim picked up what was left. He locked the car with his free hand and jogged ahead of us as we walked up the stepped gravel path to the house. As he approached the top of the path, he fished a large black key out of his pocket. He slotted it into the door, the latch freed with a satisfying clunk. Let's get ready to rumble, he said as he jumped on the spot, rubbing his hands to keep warm. His reddened cheeks gave away the cold of the outside. Entering our temporary accommodation, the stale air filled my nasal cavity. The familiar smell conjuring up memories of my childhood. I glanced at the couch, mentally feeling its coarse brown fibrous texture on my fingertips, almost seeing a young me, head hunched over a Game Boy, trying to collect another golden coin for a plumber dressed in slacks. The vision faded as soon as it was realized. We put the beer down on the kitchen counter. Jim opened the fridge. Fuck, man. Think something has gone off in here, he said, wincing and turning away from the contents. The fridge was empty except for a ripe pile of turquoise mold that I'd have guessed was once meat. We'll have to make do without a fridge, unless someone else wants to clean it, I asked hoping someone would take me up on my offer. I had a serious aversion to mold. As soon as you touch the stuff, it seems to float off, looking for anything to infect with its virus-like seed. I scanned everyone's face for interest. (laughs) There were no takers. We should leave the beer outside. It's cold enough, Jim suggested. Nods from around the room confirmed this was a good idea. It makes me think how unconnected we are with nature when it's literally freezing all year here and we insist on having a fridge in a warm room. There is just something that doesn't feel 21st century about putting your cold goods outside in the snow. The guys carried the drinks out of the back door. I knelt down in front of the fireplace, picked up seasoned logs and placed them in the hearth in a neat pyramid fashion. The most efficient way I had found. A ritual. An exercise in mindfulness. I had visions of one of my drunk friends falling face first into the flames, full to the brim with alcohol, burning them to a crisp so quickly it would be kinder to let them roast than to drag them out and extinguish them. The drinks flowed with speed, like you would do when joining a party late to make up for lost time. The familiar relaxing buzz filled my head, my legs jelly. I checked my watch. It was barely 40 minutes since we sat down. We joked. I laughed so much tears jettisoned from my eyes as if to get away from all the noise. This place always gave me a sense everything was going to be okay. Maybe it was because, as a child, I'd enjoyed every minute here. Maybe it was because my parents never argued here. They argued all the time at home. 
My mother used to say this place cleared her head, allowed her to just be. A place where worry and anxiety were just words, just concepts that had no connection to the physical world. My dad made his fortune here. He'd make trips in the middle of the week when he had important client meetings. Meetings where imposing himself was the most important thing of all. He was not someone who liked confrontation or competition, but here it was different. He said that if you are the man on top of the mountain, you get to write the rule book. People listen to you. Whenever my parents seemed to be arguing more, they'd arrange a trip up here. All would be fine when we were here. The effect lasted, and it would be a long time before we'd be returning. You know that point when you've drunk so much, you are more of an observer than a conscious participant in your life? I was past that point to where I had lost all peripheral vision. It was like I was watching my life play on a cinema screen 20 feet in front of me. A couple more beers and tonight would have been another black spot in my long-term memory. I found myself walking out of my parents' room, drawn there with a need. Something almost primal that needed satisfying. I gripped the object that I had been pulled in there to collect and returned to the main open-plan living area. I think we should play a game. I announced as I held the incredibly shiny, oversized magnum gun in my hand, pointing it towards the ceiling. I acknowledged the smiles on everyone's faces. They knew what I was suggesting. They were game. Joe took the gun off me and headed for the dining table with an excited, somewhat camp gait. Everyone followed in tow. He beckoned me to join them. We sat in unison. The atmosphere tightened. The haze of drunkenness partially retreated, leaving me with a renewed focus. Trent played with the revolver. He pointed it before closing an eye as he practiced aiming. He spun the cylinder, enjoying the satisfying fizz of the well-oiled machine as it gradually slowed to a stop. Flicking it open, he checked the chamber for bullets. Just one bullet. Six chambers. There are six of us. He announced, placing the weapon on the table with satisfaction. It let out a dull thud as it came to rest, betraying its weight. Who's in? Joe asked. Without much trepidation, everybody raised their hands. I don't know what it was, but it felt right, as if playing this reckless game was a rite of passage or a needful experience that we must all be a part of. If you believe in fate, you believe your destiny is not something you can change. If you die, you die. If you live, it was meant to be. At the time, the logic was so clear and obvious. Spin for first go? Joe asked, as if he was preparing to play the school game Spin the Bottle. However, this bottle had a six-slotted wheel of fortune and gunpowder. 
The gun spun. The low hum as it turned signaled the start of the game. It came to a rest facing Rick. His face twitched as the neurons in his brain fired, telling him he was about to shoot a live firearm into his skull. He ignored the warning. Tapping the cylinder, he pushed it to randomize the bullet. He calmly moved the gun to his temple, closed his eyes, and waited for it to stop. When it did, he pressed the trigger without a second thought, looking dead ahead with military-like precision. The sound of the hammer hitting an impotent firing pin. A smile grew on Rick's face, a recognition of what he'd done, a morsel of humanity, a crumb of terror before fading away, giving way to enjoyment. The gun turned again, this time landing on Trent. In a similar manner to Rick, the weapon rusted on his temple. He flinched, the touch of the metal cementing the event in his consciousness. His hand trembled, but his finger did not. His face did not share the fear his hand was representing. Slowly but precisely, he squeezed. The hammer clunked against the firing pin in an anticlimactic click. He let out a large sigh of relief, a fist pump, and a large gulp of neat vodka. The thought of drowning neat spirits turned my stomach, the copious amounts of alcohol already in my guts protesting the possibility of more firewater. Graham, the quiet guy, picked up the heavy chrome gun. So large in his tiny, slender fingers, it appeared cartoonish. It visibly weighed down his hand. He did not spin the cylinder. He rode his luck. Without a second thought, he grimaced and squeezed his eyes shut. Who the man? Who's the fucking man? He shouted getting out of his chair to stand aloft, fist on his hips, chest puffed up like Superman, so pleased with his achievement, as if it was skill and not some random event the laws of quantum mechanics afforded him. He placed the revolver back on the table. Sweaty fingerprints were left behind on the otherwise polished barrel. The spinning came to an abrupt stop, as before it faced its next player, testing one person at a time. Jim closed his eyes and breathed quietly, in through the nose, out through the mouth. He rested his hand on the iridescent pearl handle. Picking up the revolver in one swift movement, he put the cold barrel in his mouth and bit down, His face contorted like Jim Carrey pulling a face. His smile grew. He chuckled under his breath, removing the weapon from his mouth. The gun was spinning again. It pointed to me. Joe picked it up and pointed it at my face. Bang, he said, laughing, pulling back the hammer. 
A sudden surge of nausea compelled me to run to the bathroom. I slid the chair out from underneath me. My mouth salivated as I held in the watery contents of my stomach. I hunched over the bowl and heaved. As I caught my breath, the room went cold. A draft blew, chilling the beads of sweat gathering on my forehead. And then I heard it. Alert, heart thumping, I stumbled to my feet. I moved as quickly as my spinning, drunk head allowed. That's when I saw the back of Joe, sitting at the table, blood and brain juice pouring out of the side of his head, trickling on the floor with the sound of a staccato clap. The kitchen surfaces were covered in small islands of blood, tiny pieces of skull stuck to the walls. Bloody flecks tattooed the faces of the others as they stared at Joe, mouths agape. You never feel how you expect to feel when something serious happens. You expect to be scared shitless, where in reality, the feeling is more distanced and numbed. I returned to the dining room, walked slow trying not to disturb anyone before they were ready to come to terms with what happened. I rounded the table. I looked into Joe's eyes. They appeared lifeless. A crystalline gaze peered through me and into the afterlife. A haunting gasp escaped Joe's mouth. His eyes blinked. In a low, raspy voice, he said, I need some fresh air. He stood up and shuffled towards the front door. His former friends scattered in horror as the person they thought was dead let himself out of the cabin. Drips of blood splashed on the floor as he left, calmly shutting the door behind him. Shit, shit, shit! Jim exclaimed. What the fuck are we gonna do? Asked Graham. I have no fucking idea, I replied uselessly. We need to go get Joe. If if he's still alive, he'll need medical attention ASAP. I'll go, I said, putting on my coat. Someone see if they can get help up here. Stat! The alcoholic haze had dissipated at an alarming rate. I could barely notice it anymore. This brought with it a sense of dread and anxiety. I picked up the large flashlight hanging next to the front door. The outdoors was as impeccably quiet as it was cold. My face hurt almost the second the air came in contact with it. An acute burning sensation that soon gave way to numbness of the skin. I turned on the flashlight, scanning around for Joe. He was nowhere to be seen. I pointed the light to the ground and saw his fresh footprints and the glistening of fresh blood. I followed the imprints. He can't have gone far. The trail took me to the left 
I ran the flashlight along the length of the tracks. They led to the fence on the edge of the property. A large forest began on the other side. If he had gone in there, I would have had no chance of finding him. I approached the fence, put the flashlight under my chin in order to climb over. Then I stopped. The footprints ended this side of the boundary. A large puddle of blood soaked into the ground underneath my feet was the only other evidence he was ever here. Pristine snow in all other directions. He had vanished. How far did he get? Trent asked as I re-entered the house, stamping my feet on the welcome mat to remove the excess snow. I didn't find him, I replied to confused faces. What do you mean you didn't find him? He was practically dead, Jim asked, perplexed. His footprints just stop at the fence. How the fuck does that make sense, demanded Jim. It doesn't make sense, but that's what happened. Will you two chill the fuck out? blasted Rick. Did anyone contact the emergency services? I asked. No signal, Jim said. What are we going to do? I say we clean it up and make like nothing ever happened, Rick suggests. No, we can't do that. Are you fucking brain dead? objected Graham. And what do you suggest we do? Just hand ourselves in? Tell them we thought it was fun to shoot ourselves in the head and see what happens? Whose stupid idea was it anyways? It was Steve's. Fuck you. You were all game. Don't put this on me. I shouted. Can everyone shut up? There's no point blaming anyone. Rick demanded. I know a situation is foobar when Rick is the voice of reason. We will clean up the place, go to bed, and in the morning drive back. We will tell everyone we all got very drunk and that Joe must have left at some point in the night, never to be seen again, Rick said in a calm, authoritative voice. What about the blood outside? I asked. We know nothing about the blood. Got it? We all nodded. Now, find some cleaning materials and let's get this place cleaned. The drive back in the morning was a somber affair. Talk was something of an endangered species. We stopped at a diner. The only words spoken were our orders. The snow followed us down, heavier than it had been all winter, laying down a thick layer of white. I managed a small smile, thinking of the blood and footprints being conveniently hidden under feet of snow. Anxiety rose within my stomach, presenting as butterflies as the road approached our little town. We tell Joe's parents that he went walking at night and we don't know what's happened to him. His mother's eyes stream with tears. She disappears into the house, 
leaving her husband at the door. Get out of my sight, you little pricks. If I see any of you again, I'll fucking end you. You understand me? He shouts at us. We nod and leave him standing in the doorway. Getting back into the vehicle, Graham spoke. That could have gone a lot worse. Now, don't tell your parents anything. If they speak to Joe's mom and dad, fine, but otherwise, nothing. Got it? Silence speaks a thousand words. One by one, I drop off my friends in front of their houses. I drive the empty car back home, parking it on the driveway. The lights are on in the house. I take a deep breath and prepare to sound cheery and lie. I've not felt right for a couple of days. My memory is shot. I'm not sure if it's the stress or something else. I can only remember snippets. I don't think I've left the house. I'm worried I'm getting depressed. I see my dad working in his office and I need to talk to him. About the cabin. About the gun. I approach his room. He is oblivious to me. Dad, do you own a gun? I ask as he sits, filing paperwork. No way, son. You know how I feel about guns. I wish you'd just wake up and stop asking such stupid questions, he says, not breaking away from his work. His annoyance seems out of proportion to my question. What about in the cabin? My dad's face visibly changes. He looks worried. I don't know what you mean. I found a silver magnum revolver in your room. The color drained from his face. What did you say? My mother said, standing at the threshold of the room. Dad has a gun at the cabin, I said, continuing, unable to stop myself. And we played a game. I managed as I began to faint. Is this true? My mother demanded, staring at my dad. It's dark out, and I'm lying in my bed. My head hurts so much. The worst headache I've had in years. I can't sleep. I hear the beep of some computer equipment in the background. A constant, repetitive beep. It's like Chinese water torture, but I'm too tired to get up. I hear footsteps approach my room. The door slowly opens. The light from the hallway leaks into the room. I see the silhouette of a man. He waits before entering. He approaches the right-hand side of my bed and sits down in the chair. It's Joe. I'm petrified. He sits there. There is something large and shiny in his hand. He holds the gun. I'm frightened for my life. I'm so sorry about what happened, Joe. Me too, Steve. Me too. 
He pulls the chair closer to the bed. The light from outside highlights his face. I study the wet wound in his head as it glistens in the light. I wish you'd just wake up, Steve. Don't make me do something I don't want to do. Joe picks up the gun and aims it at the side of my head. I try to get out of bed and run, but I can't. I'm too weak. I hear the distant sounds of crying. It's my mother. Mom? Where are you? Steve? I think he's waking up. Mom, what are you saying? I'm awake. He's convulsing, comes the statement of a voice I do not recognize. I look down at my body. My arms and body are shaking uncontrollably. I feel hands on my body, holding me down, but I cannot see them. What the fuck is happening to me? I feel the acute pain of a needle enter my arm. Slowly but surely, my body stops shaking. I think he's opening his eyes. I hear my overjoyed mother announce. I see stars in front of my eyes, and the room rapidly fades away. Within five seconds, the light in the room is blinding. I press my eyes shut. The smell of disinfectant overwhelms me, and I begin to come to. Through squinting eyes, I see my mother peer down at me. Around the room, I recognize Graham. There's a man that looks like a doctor facing away from me, and Joe sits in a chair next to the bed. Doctor, he's awake! He's awake! Steve, can you see me? My mother asks. I nod as much as I can muster. Her smile soon dissolves. I have some bad news. I can see it in her eyes. She doesn't want to tell me. You've... you've been shot. I instinctively bring my hand up to my face. I feel bandages cover most of it. I feel around for damage. My heart sinks when I feel for my chin. It is missing. I try to talk. Yo! Shh! My mother soothed. But he shot me. I don't know what you're saying. I have to take Graham home. I'll see you later. You're in good hands. Joe's here. The doctor plied me with another injection of something that was acting as a tranquilizer. My head flopped over and I gazed directly into Joe's eyes. He smiled.
episode has come to an end. Thank you for spending time with us at the No Sleep Podcast. If you would like to learn how you can hear the full-length version of this episode, featuring many more stories, please visit thenosleeppodcast.com and click on the Season Pass link. Purchasing a Season Pass will help support everyone who contributes to the podcast. And in return, you'll get 25 full-length episodes and three exclusive bonus episodes, all for only $19.99. This is David Cummings. Thank you for listening, and join us again for the next episode of the No Sleep Podcast. Thank you.